Hi, this is Kat. This is Phoebe. We are Feminine Chaos. Thank you for for joining joining us. us. Um, So, uh, Phoebe, are you hungry? I could go for something. Um, To quote quote the the younger daughter in The Nanny, they eat some large meal and then she says, I could go for abyssal which is Yiddish for that she could go for another little bit. And it's supposed to be funny because they're this very sort of like uptight British family or like British American family. And she's clearly learned from earthy Jewish New York Queens or nanny Fran Fine, played by Fran Drescher, not just the term Bissell, but the whole concept of eating yourself sick and then still having a little bit more food. Oh, so well, if uh, if you were to, for instance, want some broth as a snack, is oh, there no, an establishment no, no, in no. Toronto that you could go to? Or <laughs> No, there wouldn't be. Not anymore. There had been. And it wasn't even that far from where I live, just a few neighborhoods over, maybe like a 30-minute walk um, from where I live. So this is a, a local controversy, and I think a local Toronto controversy that I think I am responsible for bringing to the wider sort of like, I don't even know what Twitter sphere, (laughs) like culture wars, Twitter sphere, because I saw this post um, on our local news blog here, blog TO about um, the, the headline was new Toronto clothing store ditches broth bar after cultural appropriation complaints. And I was just like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> it just seemed like a lot of, there just seemed to be a lot of, um, so I wrote about this for Arc Digital and my piece is, I the editor came up with this headline, it's no soup for you. And I think it, it is catchier, much catchier than um, whatever convoluted thing I had probably come up with. Um, but basically uh, it's a broth bar that had opened as a pop-up in a new sort of like leggings store um, and not just any leggings store. So um, Lululemon is based in Canada, not in Toronto, but in Canada. This is no Lululemon. This is like um, woke leggings. Okay. So, um, so I quoted from the website of the leggings store. um, It's marketing materials. Okay. We aim to marry the idea of performance activewear with street style for the resilient, mindful, and for the resilient, mindful, and real, I don't actually know how you pronounce this word. It's W-O-M-X-N. Okay. Oh, it's it's women, but meant to include. The letter X. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, nobody's stopping anybody of any gender from going into any legging store, at least in Toronto, and buying whichever leggings you feel like. So I don't know what this means, but it's also supposed to be sort of body positive leggings, whatever, you know, they're trying to go for something kind of the legging store permission is trying to go for something kind of um, like that, if that makes sense. And this legging store in turn opened a pop up called Ripe Nutrition from a from a company called Ripe Nutrition. Um, these are all women owned, um, white women owned will be relevant. Uh, it seems uh, small businesses Ripe nutrition being a, like a purveyor of food I personally would have no interest in, but that whatever it's, you know, kind of like the LA wellness sort of Instagram wellness kind of like rebranding of foods as like having 
like superfoods and nutrients or whatever but also Notably, having yeah. everything is everything is smoothied or pureed mm-hmm. or brothed probably and, because then you know you can you can consume this but still try on the leggings afterward or, or do other things or do other things as, to as tie in have, with another episode of feminine chaos um yeah so basically these neither the leggings company nor the broth pop-up are businesses that I personally would probably have been drawn to. However, I say more power to people who are at this time, at least currently, um, we're in a 28-day, although God knows how long it'll actually last, lockdown in Toronto, where you cannot go into a woke or unwoke legging store because retail is done. Um, You can only order stuff online, which is something that never quite caught on in Canada the way it did in the States. So like there's basically stuff is done, like you can't get anything anyway. Um, So good on them for trying to open (laughs) something now. Um, But anyway, they were just, you know, chugging along with their broth and their leggings. Apparently I have not actually been to this place, but I I'll take their word for it until what? Well, until, well, (laughs) as, as always happens, there was, a journalist. Mm-hmm. Can't have those. <laughs> <laughs> no, very much not. Um, this was a local Toronto journalist. Yeah, so a journalist, um, seemingly like sort of young, not like a super like, um, not like the editor in chief or something, but an editor um, at the Toronto Star, which is um, like one of the major newspapers here. Um, she so this her name is Evelyn, although Evie on Twitter, uh, Kwong, who tweeted a whole thread um, in her own capacity, not as the Toronto Star, um, but it is relevant what her job is, I think, for this conversation. Um, she tweeted a white owned trendy spot on Ossington is selling bone broth across the street from Golden Turkle Fuss, like spelled P.H.O., um, the Vietnamese food. OK. Um, also sexualizing, quote, jerk sauce and pho hot sauce and making superfood dumplings for profit. Y'all, I'm sick. <laughs> okay. So there is a lot going on, like a lot as always. But basically this, it doesn't seem that this food establishment has any, like apart from the sort of wellness, any one particular mission. It's not just Asian food or even riffs on Asian food. It also has these kind of corny names, like, you know, it's like Trader Joe's, um, you know, with those puns, but it's supposed to be, um, but they're a little bit like racy puns, um, like hot for you, which is apparently very um, obscene and demeaning um, or something. But anyway, so the point of this call out, and it's like a whole thread of call out, it starts with kind of like this, where um, Kwong is basically saying like that she was, and this we will discuss in more detail as well, that she was made fun of or shamed out of bringing um, Chinese food as school lunch by classmates um, as a child, and that she's put off by um, white people who you know, represent at least the white people, presumably they were white, um, who were making fun of her for this food back in the day and are now profiting from uh, that food now. So first it starts out with just kind of a note of like, this is unpleasant. Now a note 
from somebody with a certain platform. So that's relevant, but it starts out that way. But then she posts in this thread, a screenshot of, I think it's a direct message from, I think the legging store saying, we saw your tweets. We are ending the partnership with the broth pop-up because it's too problematic, the broth pop-up. Okay. And then to which she responds, not, oh my goodness, I was just saying, venting my annoyance. Why are you changing your business plans because of me, but rather with, and I with saying that she hasn't heard anything from the broth having from the, um, whatever they were called ripe nutrition. She hasn't heard anything from them. Hmm. So then she, then they in turn ripe nutrition post to their Instagram, the very Instagrammy sort of, I think it was a pink background, whatever, like real, like Instagram card kind of Pinterest board style apology for having not been aware and they are learning and so forth. Um, and well, as these, what are they learning? Well, okay. So as these things, <laughs> as these things always do, and I, I, I'm sure I bear some responsibility for it because even though I think all of my critiques of, of this have been quite calm, you know, once something's out there, it's out there and you get the people online who pile on, right. You know, you get the people who are like that, you know, idiot, blah, 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 you know, and like, so then, then she in turn, I need to find the tweet. Okay, here it is. She says fan mail in the tweet. And it's somebody, I'm not going to read the tweet, but it's just like a completely like unhinged, um, racist, sexist message. Um, now, the question is, was she therefore in the right to try to get businesses shut down because racists exist in the world? I don't know. I mean, that's where it gets complicated, right? God, I don't think it's that complicated. <laughs> I mean, well, no, I, so I do. That's where I'm going to be. I'm going to be like semi-woke baby on this. But what do you think? Kat, go go ahead. Um, I don't know. I think that, so the, the thing about this that stuck out to me, and it's an element of pretty much every time there is a food related controversy of of this type like a cultural appropriation controversy there's almost inevitably an aggrieved person at the start of it who is complaining that it's not okay for people of a, a certain ethnic background to celebrate or profit from the sale of or participate in ethnic cuisines that you know the, from from a, a background that they don't share because when the aggrieved person was a child white people different white people not the same not the same ones who are who are running the broth bar or whatever but some other random person made fun of their lunch, made fun of their ethnic lunch that they brought from home because it smelled weird or looked strange, um, and that this person was shamed as like a fourth grader into eating bad cafeteria pizza and abandoning, you know, their culinary heritage. And so now, as an adult, 20, perhaps even 30 years later, it's it's time for these random entrepreneurs who run a restaurant or what have you 
to be held accountable for the bad act of like that mean lunch disser from fourth grade. And I just, I, I've been impatient with this line of reasoning and this line of justification for basically trying to tell people what kind of food they are and aren't allowed to eat, cook, sell, etc. Um, and I've, I've basically reached the end of my rope with it. I just can't understand why. I mean, as an adult, if you are still carrying around these wounds, um, you know, this, this deep unhappiness from the fact that somebody made fun of your lunch in fourth grade and it's causing you this much angst in your adult life. Um, I think that's a you problem. And I think it probably is the kind of thing you should be addressing either internally or with a therapist. It's a, it's a thing that you should be aiming to get over and certainly not something that you should be sort of projecting or inflicting upon mm-hmm. those around you, let alone doing it in a way that causes material harm mm-hmm. to another person's livelihood. Okay. So I think where we, I think we agree on some of this and disagree on other of this. So I think being told, like, I think children are nasty to one another and it doesn't necessarily even require any sort of identity-based marginalization for that to be the case. I think that's something that rarely seems to come up um, apart from like we talk about it, but I don't know if it's like very gen- generally discussed in this day and age. So I think that is relevant. However, I do think if you're bullied for reasons that do connect to these kind of broader um, social structures, I think that it's fair to say that there is some sort of common thread of racism that connects having your uh, Chinese lunch made fun of as a child and the fact that if a white woman with um, a certain look is selling, you know, dumplings in this case, that that gets sort of treated in a certain way, although then that's a separate question that I will get to later, whether this is actually profit, like what, what this means in terms of profit. But anyway... Um, yeah, I think this is, I do think this is a a legitimate thing to have feelings about. And I don't think it necessarily, if it stops at the level of feelings or even, or, or of sort of like analysis, like cultural analysis, whatever, I don't think there's anything at all wrong with it. I think what happens though, is in cases like this, um, it doesn't like having, like, you can't then say that this is about who's allowed to do what and start just sort of like haphazardly like shutting people's businesses and livelihoods down in a pandemic who have some small business or whatever and just in general like this is not something that can be addressed by sort of like um individually picking off the people who um cross some sort of taboo that you know it doesn't I don't think that makes any sense or is remotely um justified and then this gets to this whole question of the punch up punch down thing here's somebody an editor at a newspaper whose job i'm going to guess could be done largely from home you know Mm -hmm. certainly somebody who's not like selling you know broth whatever (laughs) um and like to basically tell people who are starting some small business now that they are like you know that would involve you going out in person probably and doing stuff 
like it just doesn't seem it doesn't make any sense and it's not the it's not the thing it thinks it is or something um and so i have yeah. i have a question if i could sure when you say that you feel that these are legitimate feelings to have you know mm-hmm. like person x 20 years ago made fun of my lunch mm-hmm. person y present day is selling broth um that resembles the lunch that i was made fun of for i'm upset about this yeah i think that what? is a legitimate okay why is so my, my 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 question is what yeah i mean because you know there's this sense when you say that like okay we should you know we should be able to at least have a cultural conversation about this i i guess what i'm wondering is like why you know what does what does the person selling the broth present day have to do with the person sure. who made like why is that person accountable in mm-hmm. any way okay it's not so i don't think the person is accountable we agree on this i don't think that the person selling the broth is at all accountable for anything i don't think there is any sort of villain in that sense i don't i think the problem comes from trying to find specific from trying to like locate specific villains and things that are bigger i think there is a phenomenon in the food world of sort of putting a white face on a food, you know, often a sort of photogenic white face, but not always. And just sort of saying like, this is the elevated version of whatever dish it is. Look at its traceable ingredients. Look at how a white person um, who's either attractive or sort of famous often, you know, is behind it. And that dish can cost $30, whereas the sort of authentic version of it, maybe in a different neighborhood, costs $5. That is a thing in the world. Is there a concrete example that you can think of of this happening? Because... Sure. Okay. Like in Chinatown in Toronto, I don't remember what the name of it is, but there's some, there's like the white people restaurant that's kind of like, or there's a couple of these around there where, where it's like, Asian inspired fusion dishes and that has like white customers and it's like higher end. And then there are like the Chinatown restaurants. Now, whether in terms of who actually is doing the best as a business person, I have no idea. And that brings me to this other point, which is that in terms of this question of profiting from cultural appropriation, I think it gets a little dicey when you're talking about something like a broth bar that's probably going to last for five minutes. And I do not think that this person is going to be making even had this not been canceled i don't think this was going to be like an immensely like most of these most restaurants fail you know like this notion that especially in the food world that somebody's like making some immense profit or even any profit seems always a little questionable when about these individual cases but in terms of why i see it as a legitimate feeling absolutely i think culturally things are received differently i think there's now this kind of hyper awareness to sort of push back against this. But I mean, I think a lot about like a different era in the food world um, where it was all about like tracing ingredients. Do you know where your food comes from and all that? And what that meant basically was like that you could not shop at, you know, like the Chinese supermarket if you didn't know Chinese because you couldn't read the ingredients and it was all suspicious because it wasn't local and all of that. And I think a lot of sort of, casual racism kind of sustain that. However, I don't think that the answer is to pick individual business owners or whatever as like having sinned because that just never makes any sense. And it all it does is seem utterly nuts and get a lot of people correctly saying like, no, everybody's allowed to cook everything. Um, Yeah. 
and it doesn't address, I think the annoyance, like I wish there were just some way to address the feelings without it being like, does like, are you or are you not allowed to serve broth? And which brings up this whole other question of whether broth itself is even of a culture, which it isn't. And that's this particular case seems really dumb because like, I'm sorry, but I have eaten not just at numerous Vietnamese restaurants in Toronto, but even like on that street. And like, this does not sound like the same type of food at all. So uh, anyway. Yeah. So, I mean, a couple of things, like one is, I'm not sure that I see necessarily that, you know, when there's one restaurant that is say, you know, in a Chinese neighborhood that caters more to, um, you know, people who are kind of fresh off the boat from China that serves, um, more quote unquote authentic dishes, um, you know, perhaps using parts of the animal that your average sort of like bourgeois white person might be a little bit shy about eating. Um, that if, you know, the fact that that exists and then that there also exists the, you know, slightly pricier, more upscale Asian fusion restaurant, that this is, that this necessarily means that the cuisine itself is being presented as like an elevated version, like a better version. Oh, the word elevated gets used in in cooking, like in food writing, I think. Maybe not so much anymore because it's very um, taboo. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think you would have to, but like, you know, when you're talking about, for instance, like, you know, these these specific restaurants, like, are they really claiming to be elevated or are people kind of projecting that onto them? I think is, is a, Oh, you this know, came up, this came up in New question. York. There was some, I feel like it may have been on the Upper West Side where there was some restaurant that was like claiming to be farm to table Chinese food. And it, it was something like this. Yeah. Where, I mean, oh, no, that was, um, I remember this. This was a restaurant that was trying to serve, um, they, they were serving like quote unquote like healthy Chinese fusion and they were sort of comparing themselves explicitly to like the kind of greasy gloppy Chinese takeout that you would get right. elsewhere and like that may be you know you want to say like that there's an elitism to the wellness aspect yeah you know possibly is it necessarily that they're presenting themselves as like culturally elevated above above what the Chinese restaurant was doing I don't it's know. tricky. I, I mean, so I just Googled elevated Chinese food just to see what comes up. And it's now I really want Chinese food. But also, it brings me to listings for a bunch of, I'm going to just say, because I have walked around there plenty, um, plenty authentic Chinese restaurants um, in the different Chinatowns in Toronto. And this is not about like, sort of white bourgeois riffs on Chinese food. This, I mean, it might be expensive Chinese food, that's possible. But um yeah. So I think, I think it's complicated. I guess for me, it's just like, I don't see any value in necessarily like addressing the, in like telling people how they need to feel about it. You know what I mean? Like, I think if she, if you're not like truly like incapable of getting through the day because you're thinking about bad things from your childhood, you can have, you know, and I do think racism exists. I don't think that this is, you know, a figment of anyone's imagination I think the question is like is it in any meaningful way addressed by getting a like this pop-up shut down and more to the point isn't this just gonna like make it all seem ridiculous and lead to backlash well I I think the thing is that once you once you've opened the door to saying this is a valid way to feel 
and then you say it's a valid way to feel hence it's a valid thing to talk about if it's a valid thing to talk about then surely talking about the individual instances of you know like finding a restaurant's presence upsetting or offensive are also worth talking about so it's kind of like impossible not to slide down Mm. that slope into i mean at the end of the day there's always some individual business owner who's seen as Mm -hmm. having run afoul of you know of this other person's feelings Mm -hmm. that they've been told are legitimate and Mm -hmm. worthy of being discussed so I think it's hard to really, you know, it's hard to put a, a kind of a bumper there that that stops the conversation short of mm-hmm. trying to kind of do this vindictive thing. Oh, yeah. Well, this gets um, into the whole discourse issue, right? Like there's no register for talking about things other than locate villain, get villain canceled. And I think that's part of the problem is that even if, even if like Kwong hadn't herself had sort of like called out a restaurant asking it to be canceled, you know, or not a restaurant or a pop-up, you know, somebody else is going to see this because that's how Twitter is and be like, that needs to be canceled, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think the thing is like, I, I keep thinking about the fact that this supposedly stems from, you know, the trauma of somebody making fun of her lunch in fourth grade or whatever. And you know, I don't mean to be dismissive about it. It's just that, like, if, you know, your average white kid came to school with um, a lunch that looked unusual and smelled unusual, like, it's it's not as though this would have been acceptable for her to do because kids are tolerant of weirdness. No, but there, is, um, there is racism among children. I think, like, I think that's real. I don't think that that, I think it is different to have your lunch made fun of for different reasons. Um, I don't think how, I think the problem is that like in the discourse, that is exactly how it's presented. That if you are not bringing in some, you know, whatever quote unquote ethnic lunch that nobody would make fun of you, which is not obviously true. If you like think about it for a second, of course that wouldn't be true. Yeah. yeah. I guess, you know, is, is there racism among, among children? Sure. But of course also kids gravitate towards mocking whatever the perceived difference is, whatever the perceived weirdness is. And the fact that that sometimes stems from a kid having a different cultural background can, you know, if you want to call that racism, sure. I'm not, I'm not totally convinced that that's the best way to describe it. Um, You know, just because a person is being, you know, because a person is being made fun of for something that's different about them that stems from their being from them being from a different um, ethnic background as opposed to like a different class background or I don't know. It's, but couldn't that be then classist? Like I think that the issue is more. Yeah, just, but I think yeah. the thing is like to, you know to, to to try to put an ism on it. I think can, can, it's in certain ways a mistake. Um, that you know the fact is that children are cruel to each other they're Mm -hmm. they're cruel you know based on whatever seems like an outlying thing and i think you know it it almost politicizes it um it is political so i disagree i think it is political i think what the issue is it is it political for the children i I think think it's no but i think what it is is i think it needs to be addressed when it let's say a child is mocking another child's lunch for being too foreign seeming to that other child, right? Okay, let's say like that scenario. In the classroom, like in the actual, in the cafeteria where there's like the teachers or whatever, this needs to be addressed as like 
children being cruel to each other, bullying, right? In general, though, I think like racism exists in society and that is a manifestation of it. I don't, what I think doesn't have to happen and indeed shouldn't happen and wouldn't be productive to happen is to sit down that, to sit that child who, you know, mock the other child down and explain that they are a racist and like expel them for um, racism. You know what I mean? Like, I think these things all can exist at the same time, like children being sort of generically cruel to one another and, you know, being people who are, you know, growing up in the world we all live in and picking up on, you know what I mean? Like, I I think, I think it can all, I think the problem is this notion that the only response um, that can possibly exist to something that is in any way, shape or form racist is to just like cancel the party closest to responsible for it, even if it's a child, even if it's something kind of a, a bit like nebulous, like this broth, if that makes sense. I don't know if I'm making any sense. Yeah, I don't know. I think, I mean, in the yes and no. So to me, what the hazard of talking about things in this way is, is that you develop this sort of hierarchy of harm suffered, where if you can trace the harm you suffered, you know, in the fourth grade cafeteria back to racism, sort of writ large, um, then it's seen as valid to keep carrying this wound around to never let it close mm-hmm. to never to never even try to get over it and in fact to leverage it for clout um mm-hmm. or you know to to whether it's whether it's to sort of elevate your own profile as a person who's deserving of of whatever which actually ties to the next topic that we're going to discuss mm-hmm. um but also you know to sort of attack people who you perceive as having run afoul of your sensibilities mm-hmm. um that you know once you create this hierarchy where it's like well you know a kid experienced this because racism and then hence you know it's okay right. to to keep carrying it around with you to keep dragging it out to keep picking off the scab um i think that that's i mean fundamentally just like purely from the standpoint of people becoming functional adults and being able to move through the world and and not be shitty to each other is incredibly unhealthy unless you can make a career off your wounds which not most cannot but if you can um this is actually reminding me a lot of um before we like hop over to our next uh food topic it's reminding me a lot of the Masha Gessen um New Yorker piece about children being bullied for like wearing weird clothes or walking funny and as if that would only be children who grow up to identify as queer remember yeah remember yeah, we talked exactly about that? it reminds me a lot of that where it's like yeah i do think there's a special significance of some sort if that turns out to be the case but this i think there's something in the discourse where like it's imagined that if you um hold some sort of position of relative privilege in whichever hierarchy that not only do you not suffer this very, very specific situation of like, you are, you know, gay and your classmates perceive this and you're not out and you are like eight years old and you have no, you know, idea what's even going on. But, um, but also just this notion that if you're not having that circumstance, that everything is just great. <laughs> I think that's just so, Oh, it's so frustrating because yeah. it's just not, it's so outside of common sense and it just, it's so cruel and it's so, um, it just like, it just makes it, it, it just invents this sort of like a uh, straw man to punch up at or something that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I mean, the thing that I think about a lot is that, um, 
I mean, I was bullied as a kid, basically um, from, I want to say, age eight on up, because I managed to keep ending up in situations where wherever I'd been previously, it made me like weird. It made me the odd one out, right? Um, and so for a little bit of time, I went to this um, private school that was quite far from my hometown, uh, not like a boarding school, but like a 45 minute commute. Um, and I did that for like maybe four or five years. And when I went to this school, um, I was bullied because my family was perceived as trashy. You know, we did not have the kind of money or come or like live in the kind of place. Um, you know, it's coming from this like rural small town. Everybody else lived in the city and the suburbs um, that, you know, I was, I was commuting to for school. And so I was, you know, I was bullied on that basis. And then um, after I left that school and went back to public school, I was bullied for being, you know, weird and um, having read too many books at this school that I had been previously at. And basically what I'm sort of trying to get at and telling this stupid anecdote is that, you know, nominally the, the way I was mistreated by my peers at this private school was quote unquote classist. Um, but it was really about me just being odd and mm -hmm. it's not as though like it was it was no more or less painful it was equally painful um as you know the the having it go the other way where i seemed like you know too weird mm -hmm. and had read too much and and you know in yeah. the end it was all it was all you're different like mm -hmm. you have low social capital because you are different and you're going to get picked on and i don't you know looking back on this stuff from an adult perspective um i don't you know hold one of these experiences to have been more traumatic than the other um i mean obviously like at this point i'm not traumatized by either one of them it's you know very very far in the past um but even at the time it's not like it was worse you know oh, to yeah be, that's interesting to have it coming yeah. from one direction versus another no i think i think that that all is actually uh very uh on point for what we're talking about um and i think it it also kind of gets at another aspect of trying to like, like I think one can at most sort of imperfectly map out childhood things to sort of bigger structures because I, I was thinking about um, my own uh, also private and public educated childhood um, where I was definitely like seen as rich at the public school and poor at the private school where um, I could make a claim for like, yeah, like classist insults, but like, my father's a doctor. I grew up in Manhattan. We were not, you know, nearly as wealthy as many of the other families at this school. But, you know, to to claim, like, I don't think anybody's going to write, like, Hillbilly Elegy 2 about, you know, my childhood. But by the, what happens is you're you're judged in the circumstance of your school, of your class, of your group of friends, whatever. So, it doesn't map out to society. So you don't know like where you fit in society. So you can be, you know, poor and bullied for being rich, rich and bullied for being poor, whatever. You know what I mean? Like there are all these things that just don't quite, um, because it's just such a, like your world is so small as a child. Mm -hmm. um, oh, should we do our other topic though? Because I want to. Yeah. Quick hit, quick hit quick on hit. the. Um... <laughs> I think we actually, oh, we always end up agreeing on things. And then it's like, we don't end up having a mud pit and then our, our listeners just have to. Nobody, who has?
has a mud pit. I've never, I've never listened to a podcast where the the participants oh, are you serious? Like, they all have mud pits. They um definitely like Fresh Air with Terry Gross. There's a mud pit. Uh, which others? What other podcasts are there? Uh, Is Savage Fresh Air with Terry Gross a podcast? It can I mean, be listened to as one. It's a radio show, yeah. But it could be true. listened I mean, but to that's, on one. That's been on for a long time. Okay, so then which, <laughs> what has um what has a mud pit? Do Katie and Jesse have a mud pit? We have to ask them. I think that, like, I mean, well, I suppose the fifth column can be a little bit of a mud pit. But the thing is that, you know, even when they're disagreeing, they do so relatively collegially, as I think that we have done here. Um, I think so, too. We don't see eye to eye. Although you may have convinced me. But anyway. I love when that happens. Um, although I think, I think I might be, I think I might be woke, baby, a bit on this one, although I'm very torn. Okay, so, oh. In the interest of eating lunch, I know we can't forever, forever talk about this, but um, quick, quick. So the scandal of the moment, the LA Times restaurant critic, Patricia um, Escarcega, who started, I guess, in 2018 there, um, had sued the paper on equal pay grounds because Mm -hmm. there's a white man who's also a restaurant critic there who makes more money. Um, and this has become a whole thing online, of course, with a lot of people expressing support, but she did not win this case. So right. I'm running out of steam on that. No, 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 no. I have thought about what it is. Um, so in a way it's like aristocratic women wanting, you know, like wanting their fair share where it's like, she's got a nice media job, but there's also more to it. It's interesting that she, you know, at no point do we ever find out how much money she actually makes. I, I suspect know that. that I, I suspect that. that if we did, it, you know, people might be a little less sympathetic. But that's just. But me. you can have you can have that an thing. equal pay. You can have an equal pay complaint, and both people are making five hundred thousand dollars a year, or not? Well, no, because then it wouldn't be that would be equal. I'm sorry, one one is and one is making like a million dollars a year. I don't know. Right. So apparently, so here's, here's what's interesting. Um, So the um, cohort, both of, both of these critics were hired in 2018, almost exactly two years ago, November, 2018, um, to replace the Pulitzer prize winning Jonathan Gold, um, who had died quite young of pancreatic cancer. So the the guy who's not Patricia Escarcega is Bill Addison. Um, he had been writing for Eater since 2014. He's won a James Beard Award. Um, Escarcega was coming from the Arizona Republic and the Phoenix New Times. So both of them are nominally in the same, you know, they're they're being hired to do the same job. They're nominally coming from similar backgrounds, except not really. And this is the thing to me. Like, I think that that this becomes really pretty tricky. To I guess the question is, does expertise matter? You know, does experience matter? Because or seniority um, in a way, like, is this... Addison, Mr. Right, sir. Yeah. Addison is 46, uh, or, or rather was, so I guess he's 48 now. Oscar Sega was 38, so now she's 40. So, um, you know, there's an, there's an eight-year age difference between them. Um, 
that's not obviously that's not nothing so he's already been doing this longer um he's making apparently um she's making two-thirds what he does i think was that the i don't remember I think, the exact I think, that's, I think that's what i that's what i saw um so he's been he's older he's been doing this longer he's also been doing it a lot longer a lot more seriously than she has like just you know having i i was curious about this you know what are the actual sort of foundational backgrounds of each of these people went to their respective linkedin pages and Escarcega has only really been doing, um, you know, she she started in 2011 writing kind of top 10 lists at USA Today, which, you know, you could sort of nominally say, like, that's food related or travel related, you know, restaurants were probably involved. Um, but she didn't really start to do restaurant reviews um, until probably like 2015 or so. Whereas um, the other guy, um, Addison, has been a food writer and a restaurant critic since 2002. And he started at an alt-weekly um, called Creative Loafing and has been just doing nothing but this since 2002. So, you know, that's a really long career um, in a very particular kind of niche sort of writing as compared with somebody who's on the scene much more recently. Now, it's, it's great that they've both achieved the prestige of having been hired at the LA Times. And there's maybe a conversation to be had about whether the differences between their backgrounds have something to do with the fact that Escarcega as a woman and as a Latina has been deprived of the kinds of opportunities that Addison would have had as a white man. I'm not comfortable necessarily saying that outright because I don't know where either one of them went to school or how they grew up or, you know, under what circumstances they started doing this kind of work. Mm -hmm. But on its face, you're talking about somebody who's been doing this, like this and only this for 18 years mm -hmm. versus somebody who's been doing it for about six so yeah it's yeah so like there it's not clear cut it's definitely not clear cut and i think anybody online who's like it's clear cut in either way i think is kind of like there's clearly a lot of factors right and some mm -hmm. beyond what, what we know um and you've looked into it in more detail than i have um i think like i mean i guess when i first read about this i was thinking like how in academia two people who are teaching college students you could say well that's the same job one might be like a graduate student TA, you know, who's earning like, you know, 25,000 a year to live in New York City. Not that I know anything about what that would be. But, <laughs> um, and another might be, you know, a full professor who, you know, lives in a brownstone. Not that they generally do, but you know what I mean? Like they're, they're equal pay for equal work is, you know, a nice thing that does not necessarily um play out in terms of like what somebody actually does in their work week as versus what they're paid you know what i mean like there is this whole thing about like well maybe somebody um is contrib is adding value i mean it's, a professor is not a perfect example because they have like other you know tasks at different you know stages but the point is like you know what you're adding to a company in terms of value is like the company tries to figure this out is my understanding of the business world. And that um, it generally, like if you've been doing something for longer and won awards and all of this, um, 
you would be considered higher up, even if you're doing the exact same or almost the exact same work. Like if maybe like if you have offers from other places to do that type of work or you don't, like you might be worth different things to the company. Like these are all things that are, you know, ah, just sort of like the working world and its stuff, you know, but yeah. But so on the other hand, I do think there's something, and I've felt this myself um, as a woman, writer, whatever, where men do, and I'm sure, you know, add in, you know, race to this and whatever intersectional um, implications would fall. But like, you know, I do think there's something where men and men of a certain sort will get taken seriously and like, it doesn't matter if a woman's doing the exact same thing. Like, like, I guess something I was thinking about, like the, the big topic on Twitter um, has been like centrist liberals and their, you know, sub stacks and all of this. Right. And it's like, there are centrist liberals who are women, but the only centrist liberals you ever hear about are men, including from the people complaining, all the centrist liberals are these white men. It's like, well, no, all the ones you're bothering to like, no exist. Um, Anyway, that's kind of a side note. Yeah, but, I mean, that has, I think, maybe... Like, I mean, like yes there's something... No, has more to do with the, the resentment, um, the sort of of the moment right now of these men who've decamped from already, you know, having a, a staff writer position at whatever sort of, um, like, legacy media institution and found even greater success striking out on their own. Um, there's this, I mean, there was that uh, Columbia Journalism Review article about Substack and, you know, that sort of made no um, attempt even to hide the resentment about, you know, these men um, like Andrew Sullivan, Glenn Greenwald, um, and Matt Taibbi, which is funny. I mean, none of, none of these, like, Politically, they're probably more in disagreement than they are in agreement. These oh, guys. for sure, but, for sure. Um, but they're seen as being quote of a kind, you know, because they share a similar level of melanin, and because they annoy the same people. I mm-hmm. guess is maybe what they mostly have in common. But do women get a chance to annoy people as much? Like, I feel like there's this level where uh, Barry Weiss exists, <laughs> but she doesn't get as I don't know. I feel like she doesn't get a chance to annoy people as much as Oh gosh, I disagree. Okay. I mean, I think I think that there are fewer high profile probably across across the board, politi- you know, in terms of political writing, there are fewer high profile women um yeah, you know, who have the opportunity to to polarize people in the way that um men do. But you know, then you get into the question of is that because they're being denied the opportunity to enter that sphere or is it because there's like at a fundamental level, just less interest? Well, I think it could be both. I don't, I think it could be both as somebody who has tried to enter that sphere and only made it so far. I do think there's like, I can think of, I mean, I I worked for Andrew Sullivan, you know what I mean? Like I I think I know this Mm -hmm. world um, somewhat well. And I would say, I think it's complicated. I think there are a lot of things going on. I think there are more women not just to sort of find that they can make a good living kind of siphoned off into more um, cultural lifestyle slash identity, fashion, whatever worlds, but also um, who just, who might feel comfortable being like reporters and do, you know, 
perhaps even going to Beirut, well, ignored by Ivanka Trump. Anyway, um, you know, who might do things that are sort of like not especially like traditionally feminine types of writing, but where you don't have to really put yourself out there with your opinions. Because I think that is something um, there aren't, it's not like there aren't any women like that. Hello, you know, both of us. (laughs) But um, yeah, there might not be as many. Yeah, I suppose, you know, it's, I I feel like there's been a sort of a shift in the landscape on this front. Um, And I realize we're now, we're getting kind of far from the original topic of, um, you know, LA food writing and and so on. But um, in terms of sort of high profile opinion writers, I remember, say, in the early 2000s, that Maureen Dowd occupied a sort of particular position, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And she it was a little bit like the Highlander, you know, she was there could be only one and it was Maureen Dowd. Um, And then, of course, you know, you had, I guess, similar figures sort of littered throughout the landscape where there was you'd have this sort of political boys club and then you would have the one woman and I'm thinking of like Ann Coulter you know on the Mm -hmm. right um you know occupying her her particular position but but even since then things have changed on that front I think there's certainly more women on in that landscape now like 10-15 years later than there were um at yeah. that point. I think that's true. I think that's true. I think there's also now this whole sort of gender beat, um, which has its pluses and minuses, like where every public, not every publication, but many publications will have like the women part, you know, or the, the, you know, women and sort of gender others front, you know, like side of things where like, that is kind of where it, adds opportunities but they're like kind of pigeonhole-ish opportunities at times yeah well i mean it's like when every um like you know places would, would launch their their special lady section of the website which mm-hmm. i mean it made me so it made me so annoyed and everybody was doing it you know like slate launched double x and there was bustle and there was broadly um there was you know there was jezebel although jezebel was really fun to read back when it first came into existence right um you know the washington post launched what was it lily like you know the fact that it's named after a kind of a vaginal flower just you know is that much more frustrating seriously you know could you even try to make this less explicit um but yeah you know the there's even even as women you know have sort of joined the ranks of these journalists there has been this move to kind of shunt them to the side um and put them in this little like you know pink room or whatever and have them write about lady topics so i think that that we're on feminine chaos and we we are i think part of this i mean we were we not the only lady we were the blogging heads all all lady blogging heads yeah 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 but of course you know but i think it's kind of an it's a knowing it's a knowing reference to it maybe although maybe these all are for for all i know I mean, we picked our own name. Like nobody siphoned, nobody siphoned us into anything. Yeah, no. I mean, we we leaned into the only women on blogging thing, and you know what? I have no regrets. Nor do I. Nor do I. I think it, it's been it's been good. Um, yeah, so I think. Else to say about the um, the, no, the LA Times. Basically, I think um, it sounds like a sort of tough 
call. I think, I guess the only, it seems like the only thing for the LA times, it seems like it's bad publicity for them to be like, we are going to pay the white man more. It also seems like they could symbolically do it otherwise, but like, this is how the working world is. And to pretend that, um, to pretend that dog isn't currently growling at the window for no good reason, um, to pretend that the working world is like entirely fair seems. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I, I guess I don't really care either way. I, I'm curious to know what they both make to know whether I'm supposed to care about this or not, if that makes yeah. sense. I mean, the expectation of fairness, I think is an interesting question because there's also, you know, is it fair for somebody who has a lot less experience to, and, you know, has, has achieved less of the, you know, markers of, markers of achievement achieved the markers of achievement i can talk so good um you know to to make the same amount of money i mean i think that what's i i like playing this game obviously it's sometimes useful and sometimes not but were the roles reversed and were a you know female critic of color making you know who had who had the same background as bill addison does um she were making a lot more money um you know than her say male counterpart who didn't have the same amount of prestige and the same mm -hmm. amount of experience and he was agitating about how he wanted equal pay for equal work i mean that man would be laughed off the face of the earth um and it's i think that there's something to the fact that were these roles reversed we would find it you know, laughably unsympathetic. Yeah, I don't know. I think it, I I think I would want to know a little bit more about like, yeah, like you say, like their backgrounds, like it, like it almost does have to be like was a specific like obstacle, like were there obstacles? I I would not find it hard to believe that there are greater obstacles um, for her path to food writer than his. I also think there's something about the idea that if two people have totally different or like substantially different um, resumes that that they're the same rank. It just like in the worlds I'm familiar with, that's just not how it goes. And it seems like that was indeed what was found was that that's not how it goes. But, you know, it's all, you know, they can just, if they decide to, they can like apologize with a pink Instagram background and all will be forgiven, I'm sure. <laughs> Well, we'll wait and see. What was interesting about the LA Times, too, is that they released a statement saying, cause, because um, Escarcega took this so public, saying, you know, this is why she's not making more, basically, mm -hmm. that she doesn't have the same amount of experience or prestige as her uh, co-worker. Mm -hmm. And some people are horrified by this. Escarcega is obviously not happy about it. But I also have seen a certain number of people sort of applauding the decision of the times to put its foot down on this front mm. and um and not roll over for fear of being accused of racism so there's possibly you know an interesting new chapter opening up right now well i'm sure we will keep we will let you we will keep you posted if there's another interesting development if there are just developments of an uninteresting nature, probably we, we probably won't, won't mention them. <laughs> um, <laughs> on that note, um, thank you for joining us and um, tell all your friends. Um, Feminine chaos. We're we're a podcast. 
Yes. You can find us if you wish to subscribe for bonus content on Patreon. It's uh, patreon.com slash feminine chaos. And thank you so much for listening. Till next time. Bye. Bye.